This week's episode is brought to you by the CommuniCore Weekly Web Store. Be the envy of all your friends with fantastic CommuniCore Weekly apparel, such as the Five-Legged Goat logo, Full Day Park, and Bigger on the Inside shirts. Buy yours today by visiting CommuniCoreWeekly.com and clicking on the store link. Welcome to Season 3! Hello, and welcome to CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. Listen, before we go any further into the show, I got a couple of complaints about last week's show because people said that something was missing. So, if you just (laughs) give me a second to add it... Ghost whistle. <laughs> Just wanted to great. Clear it's that dark up for everybody. And, it's dark and stormy here while we record. So, no, so that was a perfect afraid. voice for you. Yeah, great. I hope you can sleep okay tonight because <laughs> if not, you better keep your ears open for the ghost whistle. Woo woo. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. I'm not okay. doing it the rest of the show now. That's it. Good. As long as we got a, at least one in for the episode, I think we'll be we'll be fine, and and we'll appease the uh, cadet the spirits. The cadet spirits. Cadet the... spirits. I see Maybe. how you tied into the ghost theme there. I tried. That was very good. I tried. I wasn't nice sure. So, okay. Well, let's let's uh, let's hit the trail. It's time for Disney history. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. No? Nothing? Uh, 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 I'm fine. It sounded like you were cutting in and out there, but in reality, that's just actually how you sound all the time. What was happening right then and there? I didn't know we were going to get to start with singing. I could have harmonized or done something. You could have, but I'm sorry I threw you off there. Well, in case you couldn't tell... Obviously, we're talking about Davy Crockett this time. Now, Davy Crockett was a five-part serial that aired on ABC as one-hour episodes on the Disneyland television series. And the series itself, it actually starred Fess Parker as the real-life frontiersman, Davy Crockett, and Buddy Epson as his friend, George Russell. Not George Taylor, George Russell. (laughs) Now, the series started a craze that Disney and ABC were completely unprepared for, but it lasted for a, a good amount of time. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring it up until later, but it's sort of like the CommuniCore Weekly craze. There is a CommuniCore Weekly craze. The CommuniCraze. Yeah. Like, ooh, the CommuniCraze. That's what the CDC is calling it. Oh, I thought that was the name of the soda flavor we were kind of going to come up with. Oh, why are you giving away our secrets? Ugh. Okay, well, I won't tell them what color it is or flavor. So Davey made his first appearance on December 15th, 1954 in Davy Crockett, Indian Fighter. In this episode... Crockett seeks a truce with Indians who assaulted a military outpost. And along the way, Crockett kills a bear no, armed bar. only with his knife. It's a bar. I, he killed a bar. It, it confuses people. You know, like my kids are like, he killed a bar? Like the place that people go to drink? Yeah, he killed and an I'm entire like, yeah, bar. That's, that's exactly what he did. Okay. So he killed a bar armed only with his knife. And the second episode was Davy Crockett Goes to Congress, which aired January 26, 1955. And in this episode, Crockett, with his companion, Russell, 
travel to Tennessee, where they learn about the death of his wife, Polly Crockett. He wins a seat in the Tennessee House of Representatives and later the United States House of Representatives. Now, the third episode was David C- Davy Crockett at the Alamo, which aired February 23, 1955. Now, here Crockett and Russell join a gambler named Thimbleberg, uh, or Thimbleberg, Blurg, whatever his name is, uh, on their trek to Texas, where they arrive to battle uh, Mexico's General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana at the Alamo, where Pee-wee's bike was not hidden. Just <laughs> making sure everybody knows there's no basement there. Now, wait a minute, we haven't been there, so we can't say for sure. That's true. So we'll get it, back to that. It may have been movie one. magic. So there wasn't a, anyway. Okay. So these first three episodes that we just talked about, uh, they were all edited together as the 1955 theatrical film Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. And it was also rebroadcast in color in the 1960s when the Disney program went to NBC. Now, here, here's a bit of a spoiler alert for you guys. Crockett actually died during the Battle of the Alamo. And mm. his death is not actually shown on the on the show, though, because it's a little morbid. But all we do see is Crockett as the last survivor uh, in the battle, swinging his rifle at the oncoming hordes of uh, Mexican soldiers. And even, you know, despite his death in the show, Davy would live on in two more episodes taking place before the Alamo episode because of how popular the first three episodes were. Yeah, I can only imagine if it had been made today. You know, it'd be like Davy Crockett learns ninja skills. Davy Crockett, and uh, episode one, The Phantom Menace. That's what it would be. <laughs> Great. It just ruined that one. Okay, so Davy Crockett's Keelboat Race. It aired November 16th, 1955. And in it, Crockett and Russell are fur trapping in Kentucky when they might meet Mike Fink, known as the best boatman around. Fink challenges Crockett to a keelboat race to New Orleans. In Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, which aired December 14, 1955, the Davy and George, uh, they pick up a traveling minstrel who actually works with local river bandits. And then Davy and George are kidnapped by a group of Chickasaws because the River Pirates have been murdering members of their tribe, and the Chickasaws believe they are part of that group. Now... Again, they made these other two episodes because the Davy Crockett serials became a huge deal. Uh, after the second episode, Davy Crockett goes to uh, Congress, the Crockett mania began to really sweep the nation. And it really took Walt in the studio by surprise. Uh, the Croc- Crockett producer Bill Walsh ex- expressed the, uh, the feeling of astonishment in a, a memo uh, from Disney that said, ABC couldn't believe it, Parker couldn't believe it, neither could Walt nor I. Uh, after the second episode aired in January 1955, there was no mistake. We had a hit show. You know, and the, and the first really big hit, of course, was the theme song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Um, the, the first album version was sung by Bill Hayes and was quickly followed by versions from Fess Parker himself and Tennessee Ernie Ford. Uh, all three versions made the Billboard magazine charts in 1955. Hayes' version reached number one on the weekly chart, from March 26th to April 23rd, and number seven for the year. Parker's reached number six on the weekly charts and number 31 for the year, while Ford's peaked at number four on the weekly country chart and number five on the weekly pop chart and charted at number 37 for the year. A fourth fourth version by bluegrass singer Mac Wiseman reached number 10 on the radio charts in May of 1955. Um, Jeff Heinbuck's version didn't chart anywhere nope, at all. Not even close, guys. <laughs> Wasn't even in the running. <laughs> when there, so uh, uh, during that 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 run, and so far over 10 million copies of the song were sold. 
Now, just that alone is pretty incredible, but mm -hmm. the merchandising aspect of Crocomania was pretty amazing too. Um, because not only was it great, but it also provided a lot of capital for Disney Studios, which they actually needed at the time. Um, Time reported that in the first three months of the craze alone, over $100 million of Crockett merchandise was sold. And then by the time the entire craze was over, uh, about $300 million in Crockett com commodities was sold. Um, Bob Thomas in Walt Disney and American Original, he called it the greatest merchandising sweep for any national craze before or after. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, of course, since Crockett was an historical figure, not all the merchandise came directly from Disney. However, an official Walt Disney Davy Crockett item was known to be of high quality and authentic to that time period. About 300 different Crockett-related items were sold as well. Of course, the most popular Crockett item was the coonskin cap. Raccoon tails, which were selling for about 25 cents a pound at the time, quickly rose to $5 a pound. And when raccoon pelts became scarce, other animals were recruited. At one point, some caps were being produced using a compound of cardboard and shredded crepe paper. This caused a nationwide alert among fire chiefs as the caps were deemed a fire hazard. And, you know, something they didn't talk about, Jeff, were these squirrel caps. Squirrel caps? No. Sorry, squirrels. Sorry, squirrels. So, in addition to all this cool merchandise, books which you know we love, books about Davy Crockett were also flying off the shelves. It was about 14 million books about him were sold in 1955, compared to only 20,000 books the year before. And to further the kind of educational connection, many schools were named and renamed <laughs> after the historical figure. So school systems actually voted to have their schools renamed after him. Uh, but sometimes it worked against them, because if Fest Park actually came to town on a publicity appearance, which he did many of, uh, many of the schools had to shut down due to lack of attendance that day. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if he felt some guilt. Uh, oh, probably man. not. Another school named after Davy Crockett? I, I gotta guess I go. got to go visit this one. As he took his money bags to the bank. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, not even the, the political arena was immune. Davy Crockett once again entered public service but just not of his own volition. Um, Pittsburgh voters, discouraged with their elected officials, took the opportunity to write in Davy's name in several primary elections. In one case, in a, a district election, Crockett actually won the post of judge of elections. That's totally bizarre to me. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. So while this craze was sweeping the entire nation, a lot of people, for one reason or another, did not actually like it. Uh, a few people in the meter actually began anti-Crockett campaigns. <laughs> the, uh, the New York Post was one of these people. They launched an idol-smashing campaign uh, led by its labor columnist, uh, Murray Kempton, called The Real Davy. And Kempton's barrage pointed out uh, apparent inconsistencies with the television show. He met his first bear at the age of eight, not three, and he <laughs> called Davy a, a fellow uh, purchasable by no more than a drink, meaning he, you'd buy him a beer and he would do whatever you wanted. So wow. uh, a lot of people didn't like the, Disney's portrayal of him so much. Yeah, that last part sounds like a couple Communicore hosts that I know. Hey. Especially at Trader okay. Sam's. Especially at Trader Sam's. Especially at Trader Sam's. Okay. All right, well, moving on. Brendan Sexton, education director for the United Auto Workers, commented on a Detroit radio show that Davey was an ordinary backwoodsman who probably spat on the sidewalk, chewed tobacco, certainly didn't know any grammar, not at all an admiral character. Presumably because Crockett's individualism did not suit union needs. 
Uh, Harper's and Saturday Review also joined in the heated intellectual debate, uh, running articles with titles like The Embarrassing Truth About Davy Crockett and The Two Davy Crockett's. Uh, most concerned Davy's moral character and were alarmed at the differences between actual history and Disney's version. Because Disney is not known to change things for entertainment <laughs> value, folks. Come on. No, not at all. Of course, a lot of people sprung to his defense, including, oddly enough, the communist worker. Go figure. No, yeah. the communist worker defended Davy by saying, it is an, um, all in American de uh, democratic tradition, and who said tradition must be founded on 100% verified fact? Nobody said that. So that, that worked <laughs> out pretty well. Of course, children were watching these shows, so children also spoke out in Crockett's defense as well. And of course, who can disagree with millions of kids? Um, Collier's actually had the most eloquent defense, uh, explaining, Children don't select their heroes on the basis of, of exact historical record. And who can say that Daniel Boone is any more real an American hero than Pecos Bill or Paul Bunyan or Huckleberry Finn? It is he who makes the hero real, who by some childhood magic could turn a stick into a horse. The real hero is not Davy Crockett or Galahad, it is himself. So eventually, um, the debate, along with the fad, subsided. One day it just started to fizzle out. The orders for the merchandise stopped coming in, and eventually it just went away altogether. Go figure. It's amazing yeah. how these things just come and go like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Crockett wasn't, you know, he had a lot of uh, heavy, a lot of appearances at Disneyland during the early days. And there Fess are... Parker himself, yes. Yes, Fess Parker himself. And, you know, uh, the Kiel, Mike Fink uh, wow, wow. Mike Fink Keel boats. There's too many, yeah. Too many words uh, in there, I know. Too many words in there. You know, lasted for a long time at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Davy Crockett Explorer Canoes. Which you can go on now still, yeah. which we did, yeah. and that was fun. Yeah, I mean, you know, I still feel a little pain in my left arm. That's okay. Um, <laughs> Might want to get that checked out. Yeah, I mean, they had that at Walt Disney World. It shut down in 94, and they had versions of it, not quite called Davy Crockett, though, at Tokyo and uh, Disneyland Paris as well. So, you know, they tried to do this as well. I mean, we had a good time on the boat, like you said. Yeah, I, I think what was it. What was more enjoyable was the can't really call him a skipper but he the guy controlling the canoe captain led the boat yeah led the boat yeah whatever he so, was yeah doing. yeah it was hysterical it was a lot of fun so i mean if you get the opportunity to do the uh the explorer canoes at disneyland go for it just make sure it's not too hot yeah well unless you get splashed that, that's okay uh yeah but it's kind of gross water that's also true but i mean yeah, if you've been on the canoes before or even the keelboats i mean we want to know give, give oh, us yeah, a call yeah. on on the goat line and where did they call again george uh, they can call 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. And let us know what you think about Davy Crockett, the Keelboats, or the Explorer Canoes. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Once Upon a Dream from Perot's Sleeping Beauty to Dizzy's Maleficent by Charles Solomon. And this has just been released in, in the at the end of June. And we both got review copies, pretty excited about the book. Uh, to me, it was similar to Tinkerbell and Evolution that was released last year. And really, in my opinion, was one of the best books of the year. And this new book by Charles Solomon, uh, like the Tinkerbell book, is broken into three distinct parts. And, and does a great job of looking at the history of the fairy tale itself, how it came to fruition, Disney's version of the classic film, and the more modern take on the Maleficent tale, 
and it's kind of expensive, so you might be wondering, is this really worth adding to your collection? I mean, it could go either way for me. I mean, I enjoyed uh, the, the two of the three sections, which we will get into. Um, the book obviously starts out with, you know, talking about the origins of the tale itself and where it comes from, and then Grimm, the Grimm brothers got a hold of it and mm-hmm. how they adjusted it a little bit, and then even from there, um, how it was uh, modified for ballets and everything. And to me, it was mm-hmm. kind of interesting to hear the very original origins of the original story itself, because I'm sure most of you are all familiar with the Disney version of the tale. So mm-hmm. hearing the differences in the originals and, you know, what they eventually changed was, was kind of interesting just to get the roots of it. Yeah, sort of like the evolution of the story and how we got to the Disney version. Um, a little bit about Charles Solomon. I mean, he's a very well-respected animation historian, and he's written many books that we've covered on this show itself. Um, and like Jeff was talking about with the, with the first section of the book, you, you get to see a lot of the different fairy tales, how they, they came about. But, you know, obviously the most important part of the book is the middle section where they talk about the history and the development of Walt Disney Sleeping Beauty, the, the actual animated film. Um, you know, Solomon takes us on a journey about Walt's, uh, his own vision to bring the film to the screen and the artists that are involved. Uh, they, they brought in, Walt brought in Evan Earl to do the visual development. And one of the quotes that I've read many times is that Walt actually backed Evan a lot because he wanted what he saw that the 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 background paintings and the uh, 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 inspirational paintings that Evan did he wanted that to actually show up on the film because he was a little bit disappointed that Mary Blair's work never got translated to the film 100% so he rode this pretty hard to make sure you know and it, there's some amazing reproductions of the artwork in this book and it, it really they were pretty spectacular yeah, and that cases. I mean that section is the real meat of the entire book itself, mm-hmm. and I mean that's where the most information comes from. I and mean, it was cool to to learn a little bit about the casting of the voices, um, how Walt went about that, and even you know the live action reference models, which I mean you think of when you think of like Peter Pan and stuff like that, but it never occurred to me that they had live action reference models for Sleeping Beauty as well. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm drawing a blank on her name, the voice of Melissaphant. Um, was actually oh, one gosh. of the live-action reference models yeah. for Melissa Vint. And to me, I thought that was really cool how they use her actual mannerisms to go along with her voice uh, in the animation process. Uh, but again, he does a really excellent job of detailing the history of the, the animated film from start to finish, and mm-hmm. he continues to impress with his, you know, his research into that stuff because that that is what he does best in my opinion and i was very very yeah. impressed with with that sec- section of the book it like really kind of blew my mind i kind of wanted more out of that section too <laughs> yeah it was at least 100 pages or so i know we had talked about that and it, I, I really would love to have seen more of course who wouldn't you know with nerds like us about more of the production and how the studio created the story itself uh, there was a book in 2012 about snow white that was done by the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum. And it's so exhausted that it's almost overwhelming. And Solomon's Sleeping Beauty book doesn't really get that far. It's really pared down a lot, which is good. Uh, It's got enough that casual fans are gonna be happy with it, and then the hardcore animation fans are still going to enjoy it. Although they will search out some of the things elsewhere. Um, 
then it sort of leads us into the third part of the book. I noticed you're hesitating a little bit there, George. Because <laughs> it just sort of feels like, you know, you touched upon this earlier when we, we had talked about it off the air. Like it's marketing the movie. Yeah, very, very, very much so. I mean, obviously the timing of this book was time to release with Maleficent. Uh, and so it feels like there's a bit of a shoehorn of getting some making of the Maleficent film into this book as well. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's it's a little... It's not as long as the animation section, but it, it is longer than the, the first history section. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy looking at the making of films, uh, you know, as much as the next guy does, um, especially Disney films. But to me, the information that it contained wasn't the best, and it did feel kind of shoehorned to kind of promote the film, and it did ruin a, a handful of things because I hadn't <laughs> seen the film yet. But... That's okay. I mean, it didn't really instill me to actually yeah. watch the film. I'll watch it eventually, but it doesn't really inspire me to go out and watch it right now. Yeah, it, it seemed really focused on the computer effects more than anything else. That was disappointing to me, to be honest yeah. with you. Mm-hmm. It just seemed to be so much on the CGI itself. You know, it, it did make me want to go back and watch the 1959 Sleeping Beauty again. Absolutely. Which is going to be released in October. On Blu-ray. Heck yes, and I'm excited. I'm Probably excited the same time that, that Melissa is released on Blu-ray, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Th- I bet they'll be about the same time. Um, so you know, oh, overall, I think this is a fantastic addition to your library because it does it does give you that nerdy part about the fairy tale, and you learn a lot about the studio. But it covers so much about the 1959 Sleeping Beauty film, and it does it so well, and you feel satisfied by it. Um, you're not left really wanting. And you don't have to read the last third. Yeah, that's we will, true. You don't. We will to. give. We will give you a buy or a pass. You don't okay. have to. whatever you want. I whatever mean, want. I, I I still recommend it for animation nerds. I think it's yeah. a, a, a great look into the making of the animated film. I'll I'll give it one and a half thumbs up <laughs> because I wasn't you know overly thrilled about the Maleficent part. But other than that, I, it's great. It's yeah. fantastic, and it's no fault of uh, Solomon's that you know the part about the Maleficent film had to be in there. But one and a half yeah. thumbs. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how we view that after seeing the film. But yeah, I agree with you. I still think this is a definite purchase. Um, even not taking the Maleficent stuff, uh, but taking that out, it's still a great read and it's got enough to keep you happy. So yeah, I'll do maybe one and three quarters. Okay, I'll accept maybe that. Maybe do that one? Okay. All right, so this, <laughs> this week's book was Once Upon a Dream by Charles Solomon. It's time for Zach Explains It All with your host, Zach Borove. You've heard George and Jeff mention the term projection mapping on the show a number of times over the last few months. Many attractions have been upgraded to include this technique, and several attractions have even been built from the ground up around it. I figured it was a good time to explain exactly what projection mapping is. The short answer is that projection mapping is projecting an image, either still or moving, onto a three-dimensional physical object. One of the earliest examples are the singing busts in the Haunted Mansion. A 16mm film of a singing face, shot against a black background, is projected onto a bust with sculpted features that match the person who appears in the footage. The image is lined up, or mapped, onto the bust so that the projected features align with the sculpted features. The film is synced to sound, and voila, the bust comes to life. Today, projection mapping has advanced light years beyond that. 
through the use of computers, digital projectors, and laser scanners, which can create a high-resolution virtual model of a physical object. Projection mapping can transform three-dimensional physical environments, buildings, figures, and surfaces in ways the early Imagineers could only dream of. When combined with proper projection-friendly theatrical lighting, it's possible to create a seamless scenic environment where you can't tell the real from the projected. The first appearance of a digital version of this effect in a Disney theme park was in Snow White's Scary Adventure in the scene where the hag offers guests a poison apple. It was so successful that WDI actually created a department devoted to integrating projections into current and future attractions. Using miniaturized projectors called Pico projectors, they're able to provide smaller and more subtle effects, like the animated faces of Lightning McQueen, Mater, Lumiere, Sebastian the Crab, and the Seven Dwarfs. By using high-powered, high-resolution projectors, Disney is able to light up the sky in nighttime spectaculars such as Walt Disney World's Celebrate the Magic, where projections are used to transform the architecture of Cinderella's castle into a myriad of classic Disney films. Projection mapping has even found its way to Disney's Broadway shows, such as Beauty and the Beast and Newsies. As the tools for creating digital projection become more sophisticated, we are starting to see new ways to use projection mapping, such as interactive projected imagery that can react to movement and mapping projections onto a moving object. Projection mapping at the Disney theme parks has come a long way since its haunted beginnings. Next time you ride your favorite attraction, Take a closer look at the various surfaces around you. You might be surprised to see what they look like with the lights on. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. The next time you're celebrating our country at the American Adventure in Epcot, you'll find the Spirits of America statues. Now, these 12 statues are meant to represent the different spirits of America that helped found this great nation of ours. Now, the statues were sculpted by master sculptor Blaine Gibson. Now, why is this important? Well, if you look at the self-reliant statue, you'll notice that he is a farmer. And Blaine, wanting to pay tribute to his father, who is a farmer, actually created the statue in the likeness of his own dad. So that's a cool little thing that he that he snuck in there that no one's really noticed before. <laughs> and I'm really surprised that you didn't do a five-legged ghost whistle for this. Why? I mean, we've got spirits mentioned. Oh, spirits a of America! I see. Yeah. See, but I feel like I fulfilled my quota earlier in the show. Yeah, when, when I did it in the opening, and I just caught everybody by surprise. I don't and probably it again. everybody who was waiting on the ghost whistle probably stopped listening. That's true. If you were waiting for the ghost whistle and you stopped listening, you're welcome. You're not going to hear this, <laughs> but you're welcome. <laughs> we just saved you an additional 20 minutes of your life. Yes, we did. From now on, we'll save it to the very end. That way we'll make sure you listen to the entire episode. <laughs> just force them to listen to the That's end. That's marketing, kids. <laughs> that lesson is free. Yeah, so all of you potential podcasters, just remember that. Put all the good stuff at the end. <laughs> at the end. Of the show. And so don't tell everybody... them there's a fast forward button, and then they'll have to listen. <laughs> yes, I can't skip ahead two minutes at a time. <laughs> uh, well, for those of you guys that made it to the end, again, we'd love to thank you so much for watching and listening to us. Yes, please leave us a comment. Give us a rating on iTunes. Whatever you want. We want to hear from you guys. 
but mostly we want nine stars. Mostly nine stars. Mostly nine stars. Okay. And you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com and tell us what you're thinking. Of course. Just anything. doesn't have to be about the show. Just, you know, <laughs> stuff, things, whatever you're thinking about. Of course, you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Still totally holding up my end of the bargain, guys. Haven't <laughs> missed any of those days of the week yet, and I'm never going to. It's going to happen forever. So like us on Facebook. Check that stuff out. Yep, and we, we've had a few really good uh, submissions from people as well. Yes, we have. Yeah, yes, we have. We'll be using those in the future. Fantastic. Yes, okay. Uh, you can always follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And... Give us a call on the Communico Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Yep. And don't forget to grab your copy of Communico Weekly, the musical. You can buy it on Amazon, iTunes, CD Baby, or listen to it for free on Spotify. That's okay. But don't, don't tell anyone it's free yeah, on Spotify. Yeah, yeah, and we don't mind that. We don't mind No, we, we don't, don't care. That's, fine. That's how I listen to it. Just listen to it. Just listen to it. So, Okay. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening to us, guys and gals. Again and again, we love you. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Communicore Weekly.